working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, this is Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I talk with an institution in Atlanta drumming, Mr. Yanrico Scott. Yanrico is best known for playing in the Derek Trucks Band and the Royal Southern Brotherhood. Yanrico just released his fifth album as a leader entitled Life of a Dreamer, for which he wrote and arranged the songs and played drums, percussion, vibraphone, marimba, timpani, hand drums, and sang. Yanrico was born and raised in Detroit, which at the time was an economic and musical engine on par with New York, Chicago, and L.A. His mother was a gospel singer and his grandmother was an organist, so he was encouraged to play music from an early age. If you haven't already, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes, follow us on social media, post pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer, and we're late to this party, but March is podcast month, so if you know someone who isn't hip to this podcast or the concept of podcasts in general, now is the time to recommend us. You can do this in person, of course, and if you do it through social media, use the hashtag Tripod, that's T-R-Y-P-O-D. We've been growing our audience consistently, and that is in no small part due to our existing audience spreading the word about us. That means you, so we appreciate that. Hey folks, can we talk snare drums real quick? Dreamy, loud, bright, poppy, clean, articulate snares, and well, do you believe it? Love at first sight. Okay, first sound. Well, before I get into all that, let me tell you, the folks at KHS America invited me back out to their place to experience a few new snare drums they launched at Winter Nam. And the drum I fell in love with, I was mentioning, it's one of the new Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series snares. It's called the Heartbreaker, a 14 by 6 eight-ply mahogany shell with reinforcement rings. I could instantly hear the possibilities with this drum, and our friends at KHS America allowed me to take this drum on a test drive. I've used it live and in the studio, and let me just say, it got noticed. Punchy yet warm, it never lost its beautiful tone, even as I tuned it lower and lower. The other snares in this line include the Cherry Bomb, an 8-ply cherry wood precise-sounding snare, available in 14x6 or 13x5.5, and and the Equinox, a 14x5 6-ply maple snare that's described as classic, bright, and articulate. Yes, all true. Some of the shared features of these four drums are the pure sound snares and the microlock cylinder drive with the butt end adjuster and English mat. Okay, you know that little click click you feel on the throw that keeps the snares in place? That's what I'm talking about. In the very near future on this podcast, we are going to sit down and talk with Russ Miller and get the backstory on these snares as well as some very interesting developments coming your way through the Black Panther Design Lab line of instruments. You're going to want to hear this. So let's get to my conversation with Jan Rico. This was actually the first time he and I had met. Uh, I had managed to be in Atlanta for a year before that happened. Uh, I had been hearing so much about him, not just as a great drummer and musician, but as a powerful personality and presence on the music scene, and he didn't disappoint in any of those areas. So I think you'll dig hearing from Jan Rico Scott. So Life of a Dreamer is your, is your fourth album as a leader? Uh, fifth album, actually. Wow. For fifth album as a leader, uh, the the one uh, the the first one was called Turning the Corner. Uh-huh. It's actually a great record. It was with uh, Kofi Burbridge and Todd Smalley, and we mm-hmm. were actually at that time in the Derek Trucks band. So when Derek would go play with the Allman Brothers, I would go, "Let's go, band. Let's yes. go do right <laughs> off. Sneak off and make a record." <laughs> we would, you know, and, and that trio actually. 
probably kind of set grooves for a lot of the tunes that became Derek Trucker Band's tune, mm-hmm. like Joyful Noise. Yeah. The three of us kind of wrote that in a you know on a practice session for the Younger Scott Band. So that was the first record, and that was right after my heart surgery turned the corner. That was like when I when I when I after I had open heart surgery, I I felt like I was turning the corner of my life. Yeah. yeah. And um. So and I, just real quick, what year was this? You're playing with Derek. You're doing your first uh, album as a leader. Okay, 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 okay. Let me think. 99 okay yeah 99 turn the corner yes no 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 no. 2001 okay okay yeah and then so so then so then all the rest of the records first was uh be in my world and then it was uh quest of the big drum Uh and then it was uh only a smile and then now is a, a life of a dreamer. Yeah. Now, and I did them all in five years. Wow, one one after another. But but being my world, I started right after we broke up with the. I broke up with the Derek Truck. When the Derek Trucks man went on hiatus. Yeah, and um, so that one took my couple years, mm-hmm. right? So um, and then I went, and then the other ones were real quick. Quest of the Big Drum, Joseph Patrick Moore. Uh, great bass players uh, and the president of Blue Canoe Records, you know, uh, produced that in this house. So that was kind of like we we just wanted to give that a, as a tribute to Japan. Mm-hmm. We're about to do a Japanese tour, which I'm doing this week actually. Cool. Yeah, to promote the record, right? To promote the record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So what what is it about about leading your own projects and and doing your own music on record? Like, what possessed you to do that as opposed to being a sideman? Well, you know, I think in my heart that I always, you know, have have just loved being a sideman, firstly. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what I love doing. I like making, I, you know, I play with a lot of singers. and But but um, when, when I decided to start making records, it was more of an outlet so I can get this crazy stuff out and get that outlet to play my jazz and my drum funk and sing, yeah. you know, be Grady Tate. And Do all your percussion. All my percussion and get all that stuff I played in college. Just get that chance to go, ah. I mean, it never been a, re- I mean, and as you look at my records, there's never been a, a, a you know, a, a, a statement of I'm going to make a lot of money. Right. Or I'm going to go out and shake the world with them. You know, right, I just, right. they're just statements. Yeah. That's what records are to me. They're statements. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you, you know, we all have like all the records I've done now. You know, I've I've just learned that they have different priority. You prioritize, or your, what your spirit is telling you. You this record is going. to, I'm going to. This is R&B. Yeah, I'm going to people Bryson man. I'm yeah. going to talk to the girls. Talk to the lady. <laughs> you did. Whenever you are in my arms again, and tonight I celebrate my love again. I play yeah. all those tunes, you know. And um, you know, then then Ray Charles was doing the. St- me, I'm just playing drums. Yeah. And 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 um, life of a dreamer was really the biggest testimony to that statement. What I just said. Uh-huh. It's just I just let it go. I yeah. wrote it in this house. You saw the house. Yeah. It just you know it's a bird sanctuary, and I, <laughs> and I painted. I painted like eight pieces while I wrote the record. This reminds me of uh, I was I was 
scrolling Facebook yesterday and came across a video from Peter Erskine. Yeah. That he 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 did uh, a, a year or two ago. He did that record, Doctor Um. Uh huh. And then I guess they just recorded like a second volume of of Doctor Um. And he was talking about you know we we made this record, Doctor Um, and and we got a Grammy nomination and we're very happy about that. But that's not why we make records that's not why we write music he said we do this because we must right <laughs> you know because you you got to go into it like you know i mean you you know you know about the money and because because to do it well mm -hmm. which i've learned see i've learned some things to do it well is gonna you're gonna have to set it back a little bit but it's an investment it's a yep. statement yep it's a sign of time so you know uh life of a dreamer was 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 my biggest statement to to date because I actually went to the top studio in Atlanta, yeah. recorded the drums with the with the SSL, you know, Tony and um and, and Chip Sopano, you know, over at Zach, man. They just you know, and they you know, they're my friends. Yeah. I mean I used to I have such history there. So the drums sound huge. Yeah. They got that big beautiful room, oh, that main room, oh, thirty foot ceiling or oh, something. Yeah. They take their time and they're like science they work so well together. Yeah. And then then they have their their, their their crew there just helped me with them because it was a huge on Life of a Dreamer a huge percussion undertaking yeah never done that before yeah and we'll, we'll we'll get into that but real quick I want to I want to talk yeah, about yeah, yeah. Tony Terrebone who you you yeah, yeah, yes. this with he's the been the head engineer at Zach Studios in Atlanta for a long time um, I, I've become friends with him since I moved here he's he's pretty much the greatest engineer I've yes, ever worked with yes. and just the sweetest soul. Yes. So talk about the, the process of making tracking this record with Tony behind okay. the glass. Well firstly, you know, you know, Tony is uh older and experienced far beyond his years. Yes. And 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 so, you know, him tracking and him, him and Jim, of course, when they're in their own room they're in their own room. They they have the top name equipment, you know, mm -hmm. SSL, two boards basically melded together, you know, it's, 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 and they use it well. And then then, but Tony with the ears and uh, you know his 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 incredible use of Pro Tools. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's, it's it's the best of my world, and I've been in a lot of studios. Yeah, yeah, I've 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 done a lot of records where. You know, the drums sound good, but we weren't playing, I wasn't playing like jazz drums mm -hmm. or solo stuff. Yeah. And so they were able to make, you know, the, you know to, to actually record the record well. Now, then when we went to the actual mixing processes, now see, that's where they shine. Yeah. That's where they became, you know, Tony and Jim became the sixth Beatle of the record, <laughs> you, know, you know, per se, because they, you know, like even on, on the tune I did with Bruce, Cabbage, mm -hmm. where they were actually really actually like musicians in it because he used backwards effects and yeah. you know and you know I came back one time to uh, listen not much you know I didn't look over their shoulders you mm -hmm. know I wasn't you know and they took a lot more time than they really probably told me they did you know yeah. and, and it sounds like the record sounds like a unified thing yeah they were thinking like that mm -hmm. far beyond my years right right. I'm a musician, you know, and I mean, I, you know, I know a little bit about recording, but I wouldn't know what mic works and, you know, how to get the most use out that room. Yeah. <clears throat> they cut, they've cut thousands of sessions there. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I really feel that they were very Tony, was very happy to do it. Mm -hmm. And you felt that and the, end, and the end product says it. Yeah. 
almost, you know, it's like some of my paintings, I, I don't want to, some of my paintings, actually, I got framer. Some of the frames look almost better than the paintings. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, the, the actual production on some of these tools, yeah. like it's the Six Beetle. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, whoa, so he is... I've been in a couple of situations like that where you have just an absolutely gifted engineer yeah. who who knows the equipment, knows music history, right. knows the music you're working on, right. and it's, it's not the same as being a producer. Like, a really gifted engineer, like you said, can become an extra musician in, right. the, in the group. Right, you know, like, we didn't do a lot of, uh, you know, like, as, as everyone knows in Pro Tools, you could, you know... It's a lot of ways to record, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So when you record with in Pro Tools, the, the best way to to get the the best uh, the the most out of this process is to cut with a click. Mm -hmm. Now, when I record with Errol Klug on his last Life, uh, Spice of Life album, we were swinging with a click. Yeah. But when you go back and edit, you go back and do whatever you want to do, whatever you know. So so when we did it, um, we, you know, with, with Tony. He was able to, like, it was only one time we actually, like on my life on on the album, we took it and we added a verse. Mm -hmm. But man, he massaged it. And <laughs> you can't, I mean, you can't tell, you know. So when he does that kind of stuff or vocal stuff, you know, I know they fixed me. <laughs> I came back, I go like, man, did y'all tune me? And Jim just kind of looked at me. I'm like, okay. <laughs> he said, he said Tony worked on it a little bit. A little bit, yeah. So, yeah, yeah I um, I'm honored, you know, and I, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up because I really can't say enough about those guys. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And we did this record like like being my world took three years. Yeah, but this record was like out the box six months. Yeah, the whole thing mixed to track to mix you know I remember I met Tony right around the time you were tracking this. Right, I think the first time I met him was like either right before or right after you had been at that studio and right. man he was buzzing he right. was like so excited about this project oh we slam dunked it it was, <laughs> it was cray cray you know and you know like I said this is because it's my fourth record I kind of know you know I'm doing the record for the reason of just trying to say hey this is Jan Rico I'm a 61 plus year old drummer and mm -hmm. I, I, I played on all these other records but this is what I gotta say yeah. you might like you know my words are crazy and <laughs> Yeah, man. You know, but, you know, I could get guest singers. Yeah. I could. I know them all. You know, my sister, you know, but I, I decided if it's going to be a statement, I'm not going to sing a lot, but I want to sing three or four and I got a statement. Mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, I, I think about Buddy Miles and and I think about, uh, you know, some of those, you know, like I, I said that before and, uh, and uh, uh, what's the other guy? Phil Collins or, yeah. or Levon Helm or uh -huh. I'm not put myself in the same sentence as those guys, but... Man, I sure do have fun. Yeah, you know? and I got I got angels around me to help me. You know, I'm just not all me financially and, and and spiritually. I got people around me. You know, like my partner Tony and my my son Rico, my daughter, and mm -hmm. I have a, a my executive producer uh, Robert Batty. Those guys kind of go like, do what you want to do. Press mm -hmm. vinyl. Yeah, yeah. Do what? Yeah. Wow, I resell. How much does that cost? It's crazy. You know? But now. If you know, I got a statement. 
speaking of singing drummers, I, I recently interviewed uh, Jameson Ross. Oh. And he talked about how, like, he, he can't separate the singing from the drumming. Like, oh. when he thinks of drumming, he, he thinks of vocalizing. Like, he, he, can, he vocalizes his drum parts in his head. And, right, right. I do. I, you know, I think I, 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 I actually, be, um, because, you know, you, 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 uh, you're in that process of playing with singers for so long, mm -hmm. you kind of think like that. Even, like, as a drummer. Yeah, you know, I, I was having this a brief conversation with somebody the other day. You know, when you get drummers who play kind of crazy, not crazy feels, but they go, you go like, hmm, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, like so, it's like, you know. And me, I try to sing the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pop, badoopo, petty boom, daddy boom, or you know, just some of the most simplest stuff. Yeah, just makes it just propels the track. Mm -hmm. So when I think when I think of drumming, when I think of singing, they're all connected. Yeah, you yeah. know. And now, you know, sometimes you know it, it, it's it's challenging. You know, like with the Derrick Trucks band, I was kind of a lead vocal, not a lead vocalist, but for the first it was about a year and a half. Todd and I were the lead vocalist. For the band before we really got a singer, right? So for the whole time in the band, I, I I sang background. I enjoyed it. Yeah, you know, I enjoyed it. You know, it kind of inspired me to you know to want to go. Hey, man, you know, I'm gonna sing on gigs. Right. And now right. I'm the most consistent singer I know because I'm gonna show up to my gig. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And you gotta have it. <laughs> you can't sit there and go. You know, even playing jazz gigs, I just you can't play bebop all night. Right, right. I mean, you can, but you can, but it. Like, you know, a friend of mine says, man, we could play Stella by Starlight. I go like, bro, I like Stella by Starlight, but this ain't that kind of game. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm a... You, you, go ahead. But it's, it's, I was just going to say, it's, I've never heard it put quite that way about singing and drumming. Like you, right. Because you, you basically just said, you on the drums, you shouldn't be playing anything that you can't sing. And so there's so much drumming. It's, it's not just these days, but throughout drumming history, there's been a lot of drumming that I think you know, you'd be challenged to sing, and the person doing the drumming would be challenged to recreate that drum part or that fill vocally. Yeah, I mean, I, it, well, my question is, okay, you can't sing it, but my question is, what does that have to do with what just went down in the song? Right. I mean, did, did, you know, this this quintuplet to a you know to thirty second note triplets, but yeah. it sounds cool, or is it literally? You know, but you know my my philosophy about recording is you get one, <laughs> you get one, and most of the time you really don't get one, but mm -hmm. you get one, mm -hmm. especially if it's a singer. You know, you we have parts, right. like the guitar part got his hook, the drummer got his hook. Mm -hmm. It might sound like the other two, three, but that's the job of a drummer. Right. That's my job when I record is to point it. Yeah. yeah. They don't know I'm pointing, but I'm thinking like, man, we just did that. I'm not gonna, I, but I'm gonna do something. You know, if it's a still a, a shuffle, yeah. I mean, I play a flat tire instead of playing a, a double ham chamois whammy, <laughs> or, or, or I might play, or, or, or I might I might go to the Howlin' Wolf tom tom back, you know, dark groove. Right. I got these little slangs. I call call them. I can just go whoop, and I'm oh, yeah. I know what that is. Yeah. I was talking with somebody the other day about about creating drum parts and how drummers, I think. And I've been guilty of this myself. Like we put too much pressure on ourselves to to create an interesting, unique right. drum part. And sometimes that's cool. Sometimes that's called for. But a lot of times, the obvious thing is what's called for. It, 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 I mean, you know, especially hey, here's here's another thing. 
especially when we're not the writer of it. Right. Now, if we're, if we, you know, or, or, or even if, if we're the co-writer, which mm-hmm. I've been in that kind of situation, like in Derek Trucks and the Royal Southern Brotherhood, which Royal Southern Brotherhood, all those earlier grooves was kind of, you know, I got co-writer. Mm-hmm. So you maybe want to, you know, you, you I, you know, I wouldn't use pressure, but you might want to think about what you're going to do. Yeah. Because, you know, in, in the context of record, a lot of times we overact it, we overthink it. Yep. And, you know, it, 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 like I say, go back to, like, you got to be able to sing it. It's like you're singing them other parts, mm-hmm. and them other guys got hooks. You just got to kind of lay in there. Yeah. And then once you think, especially if you're, rec- you know, in, in recording, if you're recording the whole record in the continuity of the record, you got to look at the record as an entire piece. Mm-hmm. As opposed to that each tune being an entire piece. Yeah. You gotta look at the whole thing. So you like with Derek, there's a couple of tunes I play with Derek, man, I wouldn't play a drum field the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I wish I knew how it was to be free. And I and I'm playing because I'm playing the tambo stick with one hand and the left hand is playing rim shot. You know, or or uh knocking my knee by Derek, which is an Indian groove. I, yeah. I play one hand is playing uh, the the left hand is stick, right hand is a timpani mallet, mm-hmm. and that too, that meant that or a Rastaman chant by Derek Trucks on Soul Serenade, which is a um, I call that I, that is a nail bangy groove, but as I'm doing like a two drum part, yeah. So the right left hand, the left side is going shaku baku, the high hat eighth notes and you know just a regular and the right hand with the mallet is soloing yeah because they would get a you listen rock reggae because only four or five grooves right but in reggae the percussion is never really very seldom does percussion play like a real consistent like a conga groove like like we would do in American music they kind of play like feels you hear you know cowbells is you know, really not consistent, you know, continual parts. Yeah. They're more like soloistic parts. Yeah. So my 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 right hand in that groove mimics that soloistic part. Right. Man, it got, I worked on it though. Yeah. And it sounds like you you laid the groundwork as far as the drum parts for, for what J.J. and Falcon are doing now. Oh, yeah, yeah. With their orchestrations and the way they put together. I looked at, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, they never played, uh, they always play together. Yeah. And that was Allman Brothers, too. Mm Mm-hmm. But but that that was double drumming. Yeah. That's kind of, you know, it's kind of, you know, um, you know, you know, just, uh, you know, you can get one guy go low, one guy go high. Me and Jeff Seid do it well together. Yeah. Oh, my God. We we will switch drummers in the middle of a song. (laughs) Like, I would go through the top, through the floor tom. Just bam, yeah. he get up and. But one guy that you you thought about the Almond Brothers, I actually taught a course on this: how two drummers play together mm-hmm. and how a drummer and percussionists play together. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of myth to that concept. Yeah, this is something we've talked a lot about on this podcast because I've interviewed drummers, I've interviewed percussionists, right, and orchestral percussionists. Oh, and like it's a serious, especially in contemporary music. Yeah, because you know most of the sessions I've done, even even the big like. People, I mean, uh, uh, Earl Clue, mm-hmm. I played all the percussion on it mm-hmm. because I'm a, I, I'm a good drummer conga player. Mm-hmm. That's a big statement I just said. I know how to play with a drummer. Yeah, I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna be kinked on over it, but I'm gonna play a pocket. But I might play a go-go bell. I remember Earl Clue said to me once while we were recording the record, 
uh, Spice of Life when I'm doing percussion. He said, man, I used to get uh, Ralph McDonald. He said, Ralph McDonald come in here with a go-go bill and lock that thing up. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right, or a triangle. Listen, listen, listen to those CTI tracks. Yeah. Ralph McDonald, you know, man, he play like, you know, like Grover Washington. He wouldn't play nothing. Mm -hmm. But it would like, you go, man, that is in the pocket. Yeah, you know? yeah. You and know? it's it, it's funny you mentioned about, about the... The, the congas playing with the drum set be, and it's and it's not quinto it's not the salsa no be, like if you listen to no. you know, 70s funk like all that stacks there you go watch stacks stuff there you go it's full of conga but it's not quite the afro it's thing. not a guy it's not the guy kink on over the right and i've been learning about it because i've been i've been playing in atlanta funk society and scotty Bryan plays congas right. and percussion in that and he he does that thing man that is it, it, yeah, the drums do do pop, do pop. Yeah. It's simple. Yeah, but man, you know, and it's almost like you. But then you. But okay, here it is. The other flavor of percussion and drums. Then, then, the, but the a good percussionist will know when you don't want to use congas. Right. When you know you don't use timbales, which are very seldom used. Yep. They should be used though. Mm -hmm. Or bongo. Yeah. Or, or shakers or, or you know triangle or tambourine. Triangle tambourine. Scotty does that all the time. Like he'll start a new section and all of a sudden this like right? sweet, sweet little tambourine right? comes in and I'm like, yeah. that's exactly Exactly. That's, yeah. Or and it just propels the track. Totally. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I, you know and it really is really, 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 really obvious when you record it. Yeah. Because because if you you know, as a studier of recording, you know, I've become over these years, you know, when you uh, when you think about percussion, we listen to those real good tracks, the triangles and just little little flavors, you know, will help a drummer. Yeah. Because because it's not all. I, I think they're kind of married. Yeah. yeah. My 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 new thing now is when I, you know, I get a lot of. I've done I've done a lot of sessions, but I do a lot of sessions that are guys who just say I'm gonna cut a record, mm -hmm. and they says, man, I don't know if I can afford you. I go, oh, yeah, you can afford it, but we can talk. <laughs> so we work it out, right, right. Yeah. Well, one of my biggest, my, one of my biggest selling parts is that I would play percussion on it. Mm. I said, now everything might not need percussion, but you mm -hmm. know what I do? One of my, one of my tri tri tricks is I shake on everything, mm -hmm. and it's a subliminal double the hi hat part. Yeah. So Scott Meter was at a, he he played on the same Earl Klug album. And, he, and Earl says, Scott said, hey, Rico. And then he picked up a shaker and went, because <laughs> it's like, it's the hook. Right. So, like, I, I just did a Three Degrees album. I listened to it the other day. All of it's shaker. Mm -hmm. You know, because you can, like, Derek Trucks, like, you listen to all those, um, especially the Grammy-winning records and all that stuff. Yeah. Shaker. Yeah. You know, subliminal. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, NotSoModernDrummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. So I want to go back. You're you're a Detroit boy. Yes. 
grew up in Detroit. Yes. And and during the time you were growing up was like the the height of Motown. Yes. So and Detroit is also a jazz town. Yes. The Jones family, Elvin, and yes. and, and that whole thing. So. Talk about like your your musical roots in in Detroit. How does how does the music of that city, you know, how did that shape you? Okay, well, um, you know, I, I'm very fortunate that my mom was a gospel singer. Uh-huh. My mom was um, from um, Florence, Alabama. Ruth Naomi Scott, and um, my grandmother was a, a organ player, and so out the gate. You know, we, we had a gospel quartet singing in my house every two, two, two three times a week. Mm-hmm. She was in the Detroit Harmonettes, and they toured with James Cleveland. So automatically, you know, at five years old, I wanted to play mm-hmm. something. You know, we went to church every Sunday. It was like a fest, you know, it was a yeah. festivity. And Party. Like, oh, every every Sunday we go to church, and then we go to, to the gospel performances. And, and, um, and it was always a guitar and a bass in my house. Under the under, under the, I can see it now like it was yesterday. Under <laughs> under the couch, and you can open it up and it'd be a fender because you can order them in in like catalogs for right. a couple hundred bucks. From you know, Sears. right? Yeah. I and mean, you were like Fender and drums. I used to look at the catalogs and just just drool like at four years old. You know, but I, I wasn't attracted to that. I told my mom, I said, Mom, I want to play drums, and she got me a drum set like at six years old. Wow, bongos, you know, and stuff, and yeah, yeah. I start playing right away and. And um, growing up, you know, in Detroit, went to public school, and uh, one of my schoolmates was James Jamerson Jr. Mm-hmm. And his dad, senior, would come to the class and dress him as another guy, Giovanni Collier, who um, who plays with Bruce Hornsby, now bass player, mm-hmm. and then also Alan McGreer, who who uh, played with uh, uh, Tina Marie and Rick James. So there's all these fun guys in the jazz guys. Roy Brooks was in town. Yeah, yeah. I took a couple of lessons with him. And my biggest inspiration as growing up was a guy, um, George Hamilton. He owned one of the first drum shops in the country, mm-hmm. in, in Detroit. And, you know, he gave me, I, uh, he gave me my first marimba, you know, you know, yeah. like I had to pay for it like $50 a month, right, you know, right, right. and I'll take the bus up there, you know, so. And he was on a bunch of records, right? Yeah. 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 He was a, a very iconic percussionist with Motown, mm-hmm. you know, and so, so I, I watched all that go down and, you know, you, when you're in the midst of that, you kind of think it's like second nature. This is, you know, wow, this is how every, everybody's playing. Right. You know, right, right. you know, Rita was living in town. My mom was singing gospel. So we would go to her church and. You know, hear or hear, or, um, you know, hear her father preach, mm-hmm. uh, C.L. Franklin, and that was all. It was like the, you know, being in Detroit at that time, and when Detroit was really thriving, yeah, like cooking, yeah. You know, I mean, the spinners. Yeah, there was a time like economically when when Detroit was in the same conversation as New York, L.A., and Chicago. Yes. It was one point three million people there, and right. it was the automobile mecca. Right, everybody was. Thriving and music thrive. Mm-hmm. It was a time. It was a rock scene. You know, uh, Bob Seger, the Amboy Dukes, uh, Grand Funk Railroad, uh, 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 Rare Earth. Yeah, Rare Earth was a Motown act, and they had a big drum solo. And Jimi Hendrix was rocking. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I came in Detroit. You know, through that period, music was just a. You know, so I was just before I knew it. I'm out of high school. I actually got a gig. Um, with a, my mom was really kind of protective of where I played. So my first really big gig was with a band called the Sons of Truth. 
<laughs> and it was ran by this guy named Calvin Fair, and it was on had a major record deal. Uh-huh. I was sixteen, wow, fifteen, sixteen. So I was like Derek's age when I when I started with Derek. Yeah, and then um, uh, we we did a first album called Message from the Ghetto. It's still on publication. Really? Yes, wow. you can find it now on Wall Stacks, which was Stacks label, but it's the gospel label. They had like Rance Allen and all these other acts. So that was my first record. By the time I graduated from high school, I was a uh, I was a football player also, and I, I became a high school American tackle from wow. McKenzie High School, and I got a, a scholarship. Actually, my first offer was to Alabama A&M, huh. and then to University of Alabama. I went down to an interview. They wouldn't let me major in music. I came home and sat out for a year. You know, still Detroit. You know, I'm thinking, wow, man, I'm going to play. Mm-hmm. You're not going to tell me I'm not going to play some drums. <laughs> I don't work on this all in my, you know, I've already cut an album. You're not yeah. going to tell me this right, yeah, right? Yeah. So I come home and I set out for a year and still played with, going back to my band. Then I went to Kentucky State University, which is in Frankfort, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And, you know, started majoring in music. Mm-hmm. So then I went from now, so I went from this funk guy to this total college student. Right. But I played with a couple of band called, I, I, I helped start this band called Midnight Star, mm-hmm. which they went on to be million, you know, million selling artists. Yeah. But they all quit school. I said, I'm not going to quit. I kept going. And yeah. What made you want to go to school and, and be a music major as opposed, I mean, by the time you're 16, you're already working in Detroit, you've made records and you could just keep doing that. Like I, what made you want to go to school? I, I think when I went to college, I saw how much I knew, but I saw how much I didn't know. Mm. I knew that I didn't read well. I knew that I didn't know a lot about it. I really saw how much that I missed, even though I got a lot on the, you know, on the, the funk side, the, 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 in lack of a better term, illegitimate side, because you've got legit, whatever. Right, right, yeah. But that, you know, anything other than European music, I, but I didn't know how to play classical music. I couldn't read marimba. Mm-hmm. I couldn't read snare drum well. So I had to share. So I said, you know what? I'm going to learn how to play. Uh, you know, and I got the bug. I got the jazz bug. I wanted. To, I love big band. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, first time. I mean, I mean, I'd never really played with a, you know, sixteen piece big band. Yeah, big band was my gateway drug into jazz. Right. Like I, I started playing in big band in high school, and I was like, damn, wow, I can be the driver. Woody Herman. Yeah. And I was in. Well, I was at a college where Stan Kenton was coming around. I met right. Peter Erskine when he, when he was nineteen. He was right. playing with Stan Kenton. Mm-hmm. You know, these dudes coming around, and I was. But because of my chops, um, you know, I had skills and I would like work on the shit. So I would get like really prominent gigs, even as a, a freshman, as a jazz drummer, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so I stayed at Kentucky State for two years and in two years I outgrew the jazz department. Mm. And so I decided to transfer to the University of Kentucky. And I graduated from there with a classical music degree. Mm. I studied with, you know, I studied with a guy from the Lexington Philharmonic. I studied timpani and mm-hmm. marimba. Did a clap, you know, because then you could major in drum set. Right. Nobody made. What was that? Right. Yeah. Carmen Appice just did his first book. Jim Chapin had a book. Mm-hmm. Lauren Stone had a book, but a drum set. Yeah. You know, I was. I actually, I was considered an authority at it. Right. And, and right. even after, even hand percussion, nobody really. 
documented that process. This is another thing we've talked about a lot on the podcast is, right. is how even even today, like you're you're talking about in your day in the seventies right. where percussion programs didn't include a lot of drum set, but it's it's still kinda true today. Yeah. And there's there's tons of drum set in college music, but it's in the jazz department. The jazz department. Um right, right. and and in in my experience and a lot of people I've talked to, like jazz departments and percussion departments don't like each other. <laughs> no, like they don't share students well. No, and it's not at every school, but but well, um, generally the case because because well because you might get someone you say that, that um, you know their chosen love and their their passion is mallet percussion, mm-hmm. so it would it, it would be it would behoove me to go and like point this mallet percussionist to uh, some kind of improvisation class. Mm-hmm. Freshman prop, just say how you feel about it. How yeah. you feel about this? Go play some vibes. Go play some vibes. Or incorporate improvisatory music and percussion ensembles. Right. Which is what John Cage did and, and originally Stravinsky did. All that stuff Stravinsky wrote was he was jamming. And then he said, okay, right, you know. Yeah. Basically, yeah. you know. So I, I talk about the programs I was in, but, but to, uh, I went to grad school at University of Missouri, Kansas City and studied percussion with uh, James Snell. Oh. And to, to Dr. Snell's credit, um, he, like, he didn't include very much drum set in the percussion curriculum, but every concert for the percussion ensemble, we did an improvised piece. Right. It was awesome. And, and each, you know, each time around, we'd have kind of different parameters awesome. for the improvisation. Awesome. But every concert included an improvised piece, which is really cool. Well, I'll take that. You know what? And listen, I'm not down. I understand why if you, you know, if you have a percussion apartment mm-hmm. and you are, and you are like, you know, you're a professor at a, you know, a percussion apartment at a university, why there wouldn't be crazy emphasis on drum set. Mm-hmm. Where it be because it's such a vast amount of literature yeah. to prepare you to get ready to do anything as a percussionist. Mm-hmm. It's one of the hardest. I mean, I talk about it. You know, you know when you talk about a repertoire list, each instrument is a repertoire list. Yeah, it's a lot of work, man. And you know, so when you when you think about drum set, they. Sh- I, I, I wish it was a way of maybe to melt them a little bit better, but yeah. you can't put emphasis on it when you got all this other stuff to do, right? Right. You know, and, it, and and as you know, you know, as you know, Zach, it's like at evolving. Six mallets. I mean, well, come on. Yeah. <laughs> come on. It's getting out of hand. Do it. You got to do it. <laughs> well, because you got to be able to, you know, if you're going to be an educator, you got to be able to prepare, you know, and all right. So if you're a rudimental drummer, you got to be able to yeah. prepare. You got to be able to at least pass this information on properly. So mm-hmm. drum set, which... You know, like I said, it's, 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 it's not the easiest thing to document mm-hmm. because there's so many variables in it. Right. You know, you can have, you know, the, the, to the how a drummer sets up, the sounds of, you know, it's, yeah. it's not like a marimba. Yeah. It's not that, like... That's an interesting point. Like the other other percussion instruments and other percussion literature is easier, I, I guess, yes. to build a curriculum around. Yes. More of it's written down. Yeah. Right. There are more solo instruments you can play, right. uh, but drum set is like, and, and it's still evolving. Drum set is not even a hundred years old. Yeah, yeah. It's not like piano. Right. Piano's a hard one of the hardest instruments on the planet because there's so much stuff written for it. Mm-hmm. So the standards of that instrument is like you know off the off the rector charge. You can't even you know go pluck it. I like to think I'm a plucker, but I can't even <laughs> want it. You know, but like drum set. I've seen some unorthodox playing drummers. I go like, really? Yeah. I ain't gonna mention no names. It wouldn't be nice, but you know, you go like, interesting. But then you go like, I love this. I go like, 
Okay, so I'm like, now I'm internalizing what this guy's doing. Right. But when I look at him, because I've been trained, I do, th I'm a percussionist. Yeah. No matter, no matter if I go play the dirtiest blues club in the world, if I go play the craziest jazz, funk, R&B, I'm a percussionist. Yeah. I'm a college trained guy who sets up a trap table. Yeah. Who, who brings malice, who has brushes, mm -hmm. who thinks like I, I put my, like, like me and Jeff Sike were doing a gig together because he thinks, you know, like we do, you know. And he, um, it was funny. Tyler says, man, both of you guys were wiping your drums off at the same time. I said, we're going to work, baby. <laughs> like even if I'm doing rental drums, you know, because when I play jet, you know, blues, you know, I, all over the world, you don't know what you might get. Well, you get good stuff, you know, because you have to give them a rider. Mm -hmm. But even when I go play use drums I wipe them off yeah I don't want to look down I'm playing the drip tubs I'm looking at somebody's fingerprints right, right. it's a sacred instrument to me mm -hmm. you know so I look at it like a percussionist and I think that that's that's what it really is it's a multi-percussion instrument mm -hmm. so the variables on it you can lay a a chicken on the tom-tom it ain't listen I think the groove of the universe hadn't been figured out yet and that's why at 60, almost 62 years old, I'm trying to figure, still figure it out. <laughs> what is the groove of the universe? Yeah. It, what, what makes like Santana say, Santana told me and Derek once, he says, man, I like all that stuff y'all playing, man. I love it. You know, he would come out and sit in. We went on tour with him. Mm -hmm. He'd come sit in with us every night on, um, on My Favorite Things and stuff. He said, I love that stuff you're playing, man. I love it. All them, oh, man, man. But man... You got to do something to make the ladies happy. You said if the ladies happy, everybody's happy. Yep. Yep. So I, um, you know, I kind of think I, I, I think about that as far as you know being a being a percussionist and a drummer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a it's a. I, of course, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a little prejudiced, but I think it's one of the hardest chariots in the band to sit in. Yeah, yeah. Everybody and, thinks they know what they want. Right, right. And and you talk about like being critical of other drummers. It's it's easy to use your your college trained percussionist brain to criticize another yes. dude based on how he looks or how his drums look or right. whatever. But then you hear the perspective of the other people in the band and the people in the audience, and they love his love ass. right. So you got to look at him and be like, what what's he doing right? Right. Why why you know why you know which is why I got into snare drums. Mm. I got crazy snare drums. <laughs> I have a great collection, but because I would hear these records, and the thing be flopping around the thing, and it'd be like, wow, and it'd be like very successful. Yeah. I said, well, I need to give me. So now you know, Steve Jordan, bro. We yeah. where we went out with. We were out with Derek, and um, we went and saw Clapton. Bro, he had a footlocker. He had a drum roadie. Man. He had a snare drum roadie under the drum set to every song he would change snare drums. That's a little much. It, it might be a little much. Just a little much. But, but, but I heard a similar story about Kenny Aronoff where, like, if he's in town, if he's in L.A. doing a session, he'll figure out, like, you know, he'll bring two or three different drum sets and, you know, a few different sets of cymbals and whatever, and he has a horse trailer full of snare drums. So he'll tell his Carter's guy, like, bring this drum set, that drum set, bring these cymbals, and bring the trailer. <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but... I bet you it is. I, I believe it. Oh, oh, I totally believe it. <laughs> that's because of what I'm just telling you. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, man, that's it. Yeah. Because I can go and do, like, these these out-the-door records, you know, which a lot of them have turned out to be Samantha Fish and 
Devin Allman and yeah. the Royal Southern Brotherhood. I did six with them. What do you know about Samantha Fish? What I know about her? Yeah. I, I, I played her first records. So I, I spent I seven, with her. I spent seven years in Kansas City. Oh, I know and, a lot about her. Yeah. And yeah. Go-Go Ray. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it's on my radar to interview Go-Go. I got he to just quit. Him. Did he really? Yes. Anyway. But what do I know about her? Oh, I know. And I know Chris. Yep. I know the Kansas City children. You know, I know everybody. <laughs> I know Roger. You know Roger? Roger. The Blues Cruise? Yeah. Yeah. I just interviewed, Jan, I interviewed Jan Faircloth. Okay. A while ago. Um, yeah. So, I, like, I spent seven years there. I played mostly jazz there. Um, oh, really? And so I'm, I'm working my way around to the Kansas City drummers on, on the podcast. Yeah, Go-Go's the one. I don't know who else. Well, I like I interviewed some of the, the jazz guys, like Ryan Lee. Oh, was yeah, he's good. Young Badass. And... Uh, um, Giuliano Mingucci. Oh, you know, and um, I've heard that name. Yeah, he's also a great audio engineer. Um, who am I missing? Oh, John Kazillermoot. Oh, okay. Who's a, a, he uh, he came there after I moved away from Kansas City. Okay. Um, but just an amazing jazz drummer, vibraphonist. Talk about like a you know drummer and percussionist. Right. He plays all kinds of vibraphone and. Right. Composes and right. so, but yeah, Kansas City is just a beautiful it's music town. Pretty man, I got some good stories about that, bro. You want that'd be a whole nother interview, but I got stories about <laughs> that one. But I played the Starlight Theater, bro. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I was like, what is this? And we walked in Kansas City and gave everybody a rental car, and I was like, okay, so went play this thing, and every the whole ba- whole band sits in a dungeon. Right, and the conductor sticks his head out the out the floor of the theater, like in the front, yeah. and there's no lights. It's right. all about the, the moonlight and the played there with um, Jennifer Holiday, uh-huh. who did the Dream Girls. Right. Okay. The original, but it wasn't. It was like the re the redo of her doing. It. She did the original. She won a Tony Award for that. Yeah. Okay. yeah. What was it that brought you to Atlanta? Um, well, okay, I get out of college. I go, you know, I go through University of Kentucky, senior recital, you know, graduate, smoking, and I, I my mom, who was who was truly a visionary, um, and she says, you know, you need to go to Atlanta. Atlanta's the city of Atlantis. It's the city of the future. <laughs> And I had a girlfriend at that time. She lived in Atlanta. I checked it out a couple of times. I came here. Came to Atlanta, you know. I, I had an offer to go to L.A. to play with James Jamerson Jr. So it was between L.A. or Atlanta, mm-hmm. and I came to Atlanta. I was here like a week and got a gig right away <laughs> as a professor at uh, the Neighborhood Arts Center, <laughs> and it was with uh, John Collet, Joe Jennings, who was a uh, taught at Spelman. Uh, uh, bunches, I had a bunch of students. Uh, Spike Lee was a drum student. <laughs> Bill Nunn was a drum student. And Count Mobutu yeah. was one. I, I taught piano and drums there. Yeah. Got a big band gig right away. I was like, wow. <laughs> There's barely a million people here. Right. You know, now it's what, eight, nine? Yeah, yeah. Something it was like barely a million people. I mean, I, I was like one of the first drummers on the Free Jazz Festival. And, you know, and uh-huh. then, then the Ted Turner started firing it up. And, I did a. Uh, I started doing CNN. So I got in Atlanta right when it was it was cute. It wasn't a. It wasn't <laughs> right a, when it was cute. Right. It wasn't <laughs> a. Big, it was like a nice Nashville. Right. Huh. Yeah. 
Come on now. Yeah, it's I'm, still, still kind of is. It was ca- I, think. I haven't spent a lot of time in Nashville. Well, well, well Nashville, well, 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 no. But that the way Nashville is now is the way Atlanta used to be. Oh, yeah? Yeah, where it was smaller. It was easy to navigate. It yeah. wasn't. I mean, you know, the only thing, I love Atlanta. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm still here, you know. It, but, but you know, it's just, it's take, you know, take it, it's harder to navigate. Mm-hmm. It, remind, you know, it reminds you of a northern city. Yeah. But other than that, the quality of life is wonderful and it works for me. Mm-hmm. You know, my spirit is here. I got a lot of friends here, a lot of connections. I love playing here. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, the, the local scene can be a little challenging, but, you know, it works for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so I, you know, so I've always, it, it's, it's amazing that I've traveled the world, lived in L.A. for seven months, did New York, Broadway, Toronto, Japan, always gravitated back to Atlanta. My mm-hmm. kids won't even live here. <laughs> and they're grown. They live in the Carolinas, which is maybe where I eventually retired. Yeah, but I, um, it, 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 it got an energy, man. Right? It does. It does. It really does. It's different. It's and, different than New York. Mm-hmm. I think part of it's being in the South, right? Um, oh, a huge part. This is the first time I've lived in the South, and and you know it, the, the South in general definitely has its its share of baggage. Yes, and its share of yeah, bad history. For sure. But there's also so much good. There's sure. there's a vibe here that is old, right? You know, um, old but new and fresh because we have a lot of people that come here, right? And it's it's you know we doing big business. Yeah, I always tell people. I said, man, you come to Atlanta, man. I said, don't think that you're in the country, right? And these people aren't smart. They're gonna be looking at you and say, come go down and get some peaches. But man, people here are on top of it's major business going on in yeah. the city. Yeah, you're. For you real. know, you know, I hung out with both, you know, Andy, Andy Young. I mean, you know, I played with, um, you know, because I played with people, Bryson, all these guys, and Maynard Jackson. He mm-hmm. built that airport, man. Biggest airport in the world. Yeah. And listen, I've been to the airport. That is. Yeah. And it and it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's hard. You know, like I say, you know, just to, just to, you know, it's like anything else. You got to grow with it if mm-hmm. you're going to be around it. It's right. not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Like New York ain't for everybody. Like San Francisco's for, not for everybody. For me. I, I feel my spirit is, and it's why I've been able to produce music. You know, at my age, you know, I got a lot of friends of my peers who, who, who still are musicians, but they just kind of, you know, choose to just chill in Atlanta, like you do in a lot of cities. But mm-hmm. Atlanta, quality of life is good. Yeah, yeah. People look cute. <laughs> you know, everybody looks healthy. <laughs> Most of them, yeah. Most, yeah. right, 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 right. I'm just bad. But Atlanta, like, it's a, it's, it's an international city. Like, it, the yes. way, it, the way it presents is kind of country. Yeah. Like, you come here and everything's in the forest. Right. And and it, you know, it, you don't, you don't come over the hill and and see it like you do L.A. Right. You know, it's not this metropolis from afar. You always feel like you're in the forest. Right. But like you said, there is big business going on here. It is hooked into the rest of the world. Um, hooked, yeah, hooked, and it, you know, and it's never gonna go away. It's not gonna be you know, anything but get bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, if that's what you choose to do, you know, if you got any entrepreneurial desires, this is the place to go. Yeah, that's why I tell my son because they, you can do it here. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, over and over again. I've, I've been blessed to construct bands here, and basically, the Derek Trucks band, even though he's from Florida, basically that band was kind of. This is an Atlanta band. Yeah. We took the first picture on his record in Little Five Points. 
Before. So let's let's get to that. How how and when did you get hooked in with with Derek Trucks and and do that whole thing? Okay, it, you know there's a real crazy story how the, the day I met him, but I'm gonna leave some of that because it's real out. But then, <laughs> you don't want to. But but I did get a call from Bruce and Bruce says, uh, Colonel Bruce Hampton. Colonel Bruce Hampton, my my buddy. He says, well, Derek Trucks needs a drummer. You're gonna be ready in 24 hours. You're gonna get a call. I got a call 24 hours. I said, oh, I, I've heard of him. Yeah. Now, see, by He's that... He's like a teenager at this point, right? He was 14, 15. He was 15. Jesus. 15. And he already been playing, you know, and he had a band, and Todd Smalley was in the band, and um, they they just needed to get a heavy hitter to go, or not a heavy, you know, a guy who can interpret this real grown quick. up. Right, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. They, you know, because at that time, I was 39 years old. Uh-huh. So I've already had... You know, been around the block a lot. Yeah. You know, my kids were had kids and everything. And so, um, the next day we, we I went rehearsal on one day, and the next day we were playing at um in, at the at the Peach Blossom um, Festival in Macon, mm-hmm. opening for Thirty Eight Special. The next day, I said, "Oh!" And I looked at this guy, man. You know, he didn't say a lot. Yeah. You know, and then um, we went on. They asked me to be the regular drummer. And this is after I had been doing Broadway. Mm-hmm. I had did five guys named Mo, Wiz, Dream Girls, played with Peebo, been around the world. And I said, man, I need to regroup. Mm. And I decided to do it. Took a, and and we we toured around in the van for three years. Yeah. Me, him, and Todd. It was a couple points where everybody kind of left with just me, him, and Todd. Hmm. And Chris, his dad, mm-hmm. you know, um, Butch's brother. And um, he, um, you know, we just grew. And then he actually got his first record deal at 16. And before that, he he had a lot of people that offered him record deals. He just didn't want to record. But now he felt like he had a band. And we had a, we probably, we, would, we went and whooped 30 songs with John Snyder, a real renowned producer with CTI, lives in, uh, lives in um, New Orleans, mm-hmm. produced the first record at Dockside Studio. And that's the that's the first uh, Derek Trucks band record, and then we did two more uh, uh, out of the madness, mm-hmm. which I wrote a tune called Out of the Madness, which is on my record and his record. Yeah. And then we did we went on to do like nine records. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So at the time you you joined the band, he's fourteen. You're thirty. Fifteen. 15. Okay, he's fifteen. You're thirty nine. He is a, a child prodigy yeah. at the beginning of his journey. And you've been around a few blocks a right. few times already, so in, you're you're kind of an elder statesman to him. Uh, what what did the two of you teach each other? Oh, a lot, you know. And, and I gotta, you know, it, it's hard for me to think of him, even though he's a few years older than my son. To me, to think of him as an elder statesman to him because he was so ahead of it, hmm. you know. Because because even at fifth by by fifteen. He been playing since he's nine, and he like he got it real quick. Yeah, and he's really smart. So the, you know the most things that you know I'm I'm just real with the guy. You know he and he brings the realness out of me. Mm-hmm. He brought a lot of my boundaries down. You know, like I had to like listen. He's my leader. Mm. One of the first things I said to him was, "Bro, I'm older than you, man, but you the leader, bro. Mm. If you got something you want to hear, you tell me what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. You know." And I, I said that to him, and then about. About a, about a year later, 
he said something, and then he ain't never stopped after that. <laughs> like, you know, and, and, and you can and you can tell, you yeah. know, because, we, like, after the first record, you know, which we, we did So What, Naima, we did a kind of a lot of little PC, we're uh-huh. good, but, but after the first record, he started driving the car. Yeah. You know, this is way before he was in the Allman Brothers or anything. Right. Now, he had already sat in with them, but, you know, but from the beginning... My biggest thing was, what is your vision? That's what his, and his dad was always instrumental about that, mm-hmm. you know? What do you want to do? You know, he didn't want to go out and be a, a child star. Right, and I've, t- I've heard him talk in interviews about how his his dad wasn't like the typical stage parent. No. Uh, and was like a, a true ally right. in, in his son's musical development and right. in, in his professional development. Right, he kind of let it, you know, which is why he is where he is now. Because his career was a gradual incline, yeah. it never went wham. Right, you know what you kind of find with some, you know, with some some other guys. So, you know, I was just lucky to be a part of it because what it what it really in turn Zach made me do is retool my my, my vibe too. Because mm. I had to go back and learn that stuff. We would have jazz month where we'd be in the van. And we listen to jazz, so I mean crazy stuff. Then we had blues. We like broke blues apart. <laughs> we broke Indian classical apart. Yeah. We broke Latin music apart to the point where we got Pedro Martinez. You know what I'm talking about? He's no. this Cuban percussionist, lives in New York, real hot. Uh-huh. He was in the um, that the the, the All Stars, the Havana All Stars. Yeah, yeah. He's in that a couple of those videos, but he's like the youngest guy. Well, Derek loved him. The guy sings, you know. Right. And we went to, we had him come from New York to teach us one song. <laughs> not really, but we really were looking at him to be the vocalist before we got Javier. Mm-hmm. And he just, you know, he it, it didn't work out, but he taught us one song. So we would we would do these kind of, we do these practices, you know, where we would practice two or three days. We go we go to these retreats in the mountains. You know, now he has it behind his house. Right. He makes them come to him. But, <laughs> you know, and, and it's because he practices. Mm-hmm. You know, so I got back into the vibe of like doing what I was doing in college. You got a lot of years between, you know, like 23 and now I'm 39. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 39. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I, I'm 39. So I'm kind of going, you know, I, I'm still playing. You know, my son says, man, dad, I remember you made, you made, you made, you, you supported the whole family. You had two drum sets. Cause I did, yeah. Because I didn't really need that much. Now I got, I'm a, I'm, I'm a sound specialist, right, right. Because I figured that whole side of it out. It's all development, and and he helped me develop it because he, even though I had played with all these iconic bands, I didn't know a lot about endorsements. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about merch, music merchandising. Mm-hmm. You know, because everybody was in his Kool Aid. Todd and me, we just like jumped, whoa, you know, and they came at us too. Right. So now I'm, you know, I'm just a chief endorser of all those companies that I, and only the companies that I wanted to do. I learned a lot of stuff with him too. Like his, you know, like being integrity, being having integrity about what kind of instrument you want to play. Yeah. Yeah. He plays what he want to play. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot from him and he, I think, I think he learned a lot from me. I remember one day teaching him, um, we had a how to read a chart session. <laughs> You know, the yeah. slangs, because there's different ways to approach reading the chart. Yeah. You know, on the guitar, it's probably the hardest thing in the world, like vibraphone, to read single line melodies. Because, it's, it's well, vibraphone is easy because you can see it. But guitar, you don't really see it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you, you know, most guitar players aren't the greatest 
You know, don't get mad at guitar players, but just <laughs> single line readers. But chord charts, right. and lead charts, and rhythmic charts, bro, he, he's brilliant. Wow. You know? So, well, that's another interesting thing about about coming from a collegiate background and then and then playing pop music, right? Or or blues, or you know, with a bunch of musicians who did not go to college, who might not even read music. Like over the years, I've had to learn how to uh, use other language. Slangs, yeah, and, yes. and figure out what they're talking about, and be able to tell them what I want, or exactly, what, you know, in in their terms, in their terms, especially right. with singers. Like I'll, you know, uh, you you can say you can say like, let's start on that seventh bar, and they'll be like, what, you know, they they don't think of it that way. And I figured out start on this lyric, right? You know, but but hey, but also like you know, like in Life of a Dreamer, it was a situation. See, I had I wrote all you know the tunes of Life of a Dreamer and all that. I'll take a chord, it's me playing piano, my Ebonic Rico piano playing, mm-hmm. you know? But I would t- I, I hire bad boys. Yeah. I hire the pros. I go like, what you got? <laughs> like, you know, but some guys, man, I do sessions with guys. I did a session in New York the other day, and this guy had like 12 tunes, and he had like programmed them all with drum machine. And like, I mean, they were already done, written with his program. And and so when we went back to cut the record, he says, "Man, we're like." So I played what I thought, which was I thought was better, mm-hmm. looser. It was was what would you get me for, you know? Right. And then he says, "No, man, play what I did there." Mm-hmm. And me and, and me and Todd looked at each other like, "Okay, <laughs> we did, we just like you know, all right, let's go. And we just did you're, it. You know? You're signing that check, so <laughs> you know, so so um, you know, learning those kind of slings, learn like you say, learning to communicate, you know, but but. But it sounds like Derek was wanting to learn what you what you knew. Like you didn't right. have to talk down to him. Oh no, he came up to you. No, no, and you know, like he's so. I mean, he learned rhythmic under. I mean, he understood, you know, anything rhythmic groupings and all that right away. Mm-hmm. You know, within a month. You know, I mean, it's not it's not rocket science. It's math. Right. Right. You know, and he, and then because he's already playing it, so you know, it's it's almost like the Suzuki method. Yeah. The Suzuki method is like they teach a kid how to, of course, you know. You know how to play first, then they talk about reading. You're like, you remember you played da 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 da. That's two groups of sixteen notes. You know, it's easy. Yeah. You know, so um, you know, it, it, it was a man. It it, it, um, it gave me so many learning curves. It like brought me to life again. Mm-hmm. It brought me, um, you know, to, to to actually revisit and live, and almost, you know, and all, and not just revisit and live, but. To, to learn new, like Indian classical music? Yeah. We went to Ali Barnes College, bro, and kissed his feet. <laughs> right? And sat in a classroom with Ali Akbar Khan and all his kids and like 40 other people in this room, and they all had sitars yeah. and saros and yeah. two or three tabla players. And we like would do community, we do band trips. Mm-hmm. And we went there and figured that out. So we learned. Like we have several tunes we played in it. We sent tracks to you know Pakistan. Yeah. You know, for Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan. You know, and then we really learned reggae music. So I don't think, man, I, you know, with a band like that, with players like with Kofi Burbridge, yeah. come on. Yeah. Come on. Huh? <laughs> that guy there, you know, he's a scientist. Mm-hmm. He's a silent, he's a silent orchestrator of all of band. He's a side orchestrator of the Tedeschi Trust Band. Mm-hmm. And I'll say that clearly. And Derek knows. 
because he makes them sound like that. Mm-hmm. You got that stuff good on the top, that crazy rhythm on the bottom, yep. that great linear stuff. But what makes it is that harmonic, and that's Kofi Brewbridge. Yeah. And that's what makes the Derek Trucks band sound so big. Like, um, And so we learned, like when we play with our... our um, God, I'm, uh, he passed away. We did our jammies with him. I can't think of a name. <laughs> Guitarist or no singer? Uh, 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 Solomon Burt. Oh, okay. Because when we played with Solomon Burt, Solomon Burt looked at me. We was in the studio in L.A. and he says, "Man, you three guys sound like seven. He said, "I'm gonna fire my band because <laughs> it's the way we would like. We have figured it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all about combinations. You know, we I learned like that kind of combination. How to make a quartet, a sextet, or a mm-hmm. quintet sound like, you know." I think it's why he got 11, 12 piece pants because he just pushes the button. Yeah, right, right. He don't got pedals. Yeah. He got horn section. Yeah, everybody like, go. <laughs> and he takes them out. He said, you come over here and sing. Yeah. You know, it's a combination. It's, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because to see them play, like if you hear them on the record, it's one thing. But if you see them play, it's it's not very often that everybody's playing at the same time, right? Like everybody picks their spots. The horns have a little thing there. The organ has a little thing. Like the you know. And believe me, they ain't doing it nonchalantly. He's right. told them what to do. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's it's layers, you know. You know, even like the horns with with, with that band, it's not really horn riffy stuff. Mm-hmm. It's almost like pads yeah. when they play. When everybody plays together, it's like a. So it's really if you look at it in a kind of a in, in a virtual sense, it's like he got a bunch of virtual pedals he's yeah. got two drummers right one drummer mm-hmm. one drummer with percussion one drummer with brushes one yeah. drummer with sticks yep you know falcon kind of plays kind of the blaster part jj kind of does more the soulful part right and then they, when they play together it's like you know it's like elvin jones on steroids yeah man i i heard uh derek trucks gave a great interview on the wtf podcast with with mark maron uh-huh. and and maron asked him like what is it about the two drummers thing like, and and Derek said, "Man, it gets tribal up there real fast." Right, that's what we want. Yeah, and that's what that's what he's going for. You know, that's what he hears. Yeah, you know, and then of course being in the Army Brothers, he he saw the benefit of that. Mm-hmm. They had three guys, Man. and it was it was madness to that. I mean, it was a method to that madness. Yeah, you notice they never played like just like the Derek guys. They never played alone. Right. They even did clinics together. Mm-hmm. Those three guys. Yeah. Bush would make sure hey, we got we got we got to do clinics together. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna miss him. Yeah, I never got to meet him. He was he was uh, my friend, you know, and he, uh, you know, I know all his kids. You know, he he inspired me. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm you know I, I consider myself, um, you know, a close member of the Trucks family. Yeah, you know, I know his grandfather, his father, and you know he would be so duly missed. And, and and you know he was one of those drummers. When you talk about working drummer, it was, I was thinking about this yesterday. You kind of almost don't want to think of him as a working drummer because mm-hmm. he was a rock star guy. Yeah. Right? Right, right. But he was kind of like later, you know, after the Allman Brothers kind of did, you know, broke up, he was kind of starting to be a working drummer. And I actually, when saw him making, I said, man, you know, you know, I really respect that you're doing this. He said, yeah, I got to work, Rico. Yeah. You know, and so he was kind of, you know, doing that. It's rough. Yeah. Bro. <laughs> You Especially don't, later in life, like if you you know if you start yes. out, you start out in your twenties, right. And you're playing the club gigs and you're hustling, right, 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 right. That's how most people do it. But guys like Butch started at the top, well, look, and then had to go into the working drummer right, right, right. thing, right, right. And I look, Butch ain't never had not had a roadie. 
<laughs> I doubt it. Yeah, yeah. I doubt. I, I don't. I don't know if Jamo probably, maybe because Jamo's, he's a pretty minimal guy. He's my friend too, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he, you know, he shoot. He'll set up four drums and two cymbals. He'd be Ringo Starr all day. For right, him. right. And and I, you know, but he, <clears throat> those guys. So, I'm glad to be able to say that about my friend. You yeah, know? yeah. And bless his heart. Bless his family's heart. You know. So, uh, Royal Southern Brotherhood still going? No, I actually um, we we did uh, we had a good run, man. You know, um, we had um, we did six years, and I just left them in, on January first. Oh, just recently? Yeah, just like two, a month ago. I'm just getting out of it. I just got my drum. I had a drum set to live with them for six years. Wow, I'm cray cray. <laughs> it's a great drum set. It was so I got uh, you know it was it was good, man. It really. It changed. It gave me another perspective of the world. Mm-hmm. Talking about working drumming, bro. Oh <laughs> my God, I did it. I did it with that because they would. Do, we did Europe on a kind of crew, kind of blues level. Mm-hmm. But we, the, the Royal Southern Brotherhood, was on Rough Records. Great. Uh, the, the label was uh, owned by this guy named Thomas Ruff. You know, f- barely fifty. Yeah. So he had a lot of energy, and he had, he had Samantha Fish. Devin Allman, Royal Southern Brotherhood, Cyril Neville, uh, I mean, uh, Brian Healy. He got like like a lot of bands yeah, yeah. around the world. He has his label, Royal Southern Brotherhood, like his pet band. So I was lucky because I got a chance to go to Europe and my image was in everything. Even though I wasn't a leader, I was a side man. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, the Devin Allman, uh, Mike Zito, and um, Cyril Neville were the leaders. Mm-hmm. And we never met each other. So I walk in the studio, Doc said, they said, man, you want to cut this record? Charlie Wooten called me, you want to cut this record with this new band? I said, mm, okay. No, no, do you want to go and roll with him? I go, okay. He said, Cyril Neville's in it. I go like, oh yeah, I know Yeah, that. done. Huh, <laughs> done deal, done deal. So I go do the record, never met him. Walk in the studio, me and Mike Zito walk in, just me and him, cut first two tunes on the record, just me and him. Wow. Get up the next day, cut the rest of the record. I'm, I'm quick. And cut the rest of the record in a day, yeah. and that's where I learned how to record. To that's why I took to, to. That's why Tony and and Jim loved me mm-hmm. over at Zach because that's how I recorded um, Life of a Dreamer. Right. I went in there with a totally plan. I didn't leave any question mm-hmm. to nobody. I gave room for creativity, but I was like. I'm cutting these tracks in two days. Yeah. Now I'm going to give you a lot of money. <laughs> That's what people say to me. But you, you got to be. I want your undivided attention. Mm-hmm. And that's how Roy some Brotherhood would go to Dockside Studio, which was this plantation, and you lived there. You never left. That's where BB King request. That's where Derek did his first record. Yeah. And 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 so that's how I kind of perceive, um, you know, recording. I learned that stuff from Royal Southern Brotherhood. I also learned that. You know, I could maybe be a success in Europe as a solo guy. Mm-hmm. You just got to kind of figure it out. You know, Europeans think about music totally different. They want the they want the real raw stuff. Right. They don't want no smooth jazz. Yeah. They want some blues. They want to hear you in a club, and they will pay for it. Yep. You know, you just um, you know you just got to get your niche. Yeah, you got to spend a little time building out your audience there. They're 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 acts, man. To now go over there like Walter Trout. He he does. He makes two hundred thousand dollars a year in Europe and makes forty thousand dollars a year in America. Yeah, 
Royal Southern Brotherhood did well in Europe. We just could not do well in America. Hmm. We had a hard time, you know, the bookings, you know, especially when Devin left, you know, we just, it, it was hard getting it, getting it popular because Devin's an almond. Right. It was the name thing, Cyril's a Neville. Right. And so that, the whole thing was a, a, a manager put together band. Yeah. It's a good idea. Uh -huh. Look like a rock band, sound like a rock band, two guitars. Yeah, yeah. It was raw, it was you know. A southern super group. Super, super group, crazy drummer, big hat. Great bass player running around. We take like, bro, dude, I love, we, me and Charlie Wooten solo for 45 minutes a night. <laughs> they made us do it. They leave the stage and go have drink. You know, not Mike wouldn't drink, but somebody would drink. And they go do whatever they did, you know, but yeah. we but we really got some good solo chops up. So I'm not doing that now. Now I'm just on the next level. Yeah, yeah. Well, man, I uh, I've lived here for over a year, and and I feel like we I, I should have met you a lot sooner than I did. But I'm, uh, I'm glad we finally hooked it up. I'm glad you made me. You asked me to do this, and you're such a. I can't wait to hear you play. Oh, man. I love your spirit. I can tell when you walked, stepped out your car. I was like, oh, he's cool. <laughs> you know, well, well, you know, you somebody says I get a lot of people ask me for stuff. Yeah, you know, interviews and or hey, man, I want to come by your house and hang. You know, and and I was like. I looked it up and I was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. So thank you, and thank you for coming by. We're going to hang. We'll be friends. My pleasure, man. Thank you. Looking forward to it. You can probably tell that being in Yanrico's presence is quite an experience. It was great talking with him, and I left there understanding perfectly why he is such a beloved figure in Southern music and in his musical community. So thanks to Yanrico for the time. I am currently on tour with the Equinox Orchestra traveling through the U.S. You can go to equinoxorchestra.com for the complete list of dates through May. If we're going to be near you and you'd like to check out the show, contact me via Facebook at facebook.com slash Albetta, and I may be able to get you some tickets. Once again, keep in touch with us on social media or at workingdrummer.net. I want to send a thank you to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Matt Krause is back with you next week, and as always, thanks for listening.